This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Ms. Melinda Abrams, the National Academy of Medicine's recent report titled Effective Care for High-Need Patients. Ms. Abrams is VP at the Commonwealth Fund and one of the report's editors. Melinda, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Very briefly on background, since healthcare in this country remains to date largely an acute care model, we do a poor job of treating the chronically ill. This despite the fact, as is frequently noted, including in the intro to this text, 1% of patients account for 20% of healthcare spending and 5% account for 50% of spending. The problem remains, therefore, how to identify and effectively and efficiently treat these high utilizing or high spending patients. With me again to discuss what the National Academy of Medicine has had to say in its recent report, again titled, Effective healthcare for high needs patients is Ms. Melinda Abrams. I should note Ms. Abrams' bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. So, Melinda, with that as a brief uh, background, let me go uh, to my first question. The report uh, spends a considerable amount of time trying to calculate methods of identifying high or superutilizers, or more generally, developing a high or rather developing patient categorization schemes. What success uh, did you have in that work? So I think the, the whole field of trying to identify and understand and segment what we refer to as high need, high cost patients or adults or um, you know, uh, adults with a complex need, it's still very nascent. Uh, it's still an emerging I mean, as you said in your introduction, 5% of the patient, patients account for about 50% of the costs. And we know about 12 million adult patients have about, have a, you know, three or more chronic conditions as well as some kind of functional limitation, which incorporate, which functional limitations mean they have difficulty with some kind of self-care. And the size of the population, um, you know, really kind of points to um, the size of the population and their needs really, you know, kind of points to something that is just common sense. Um, this venerable notion in, in medicine of, of, of triage. And if we could just kind of identify and develop a system that really helps these patients um, who unfortunately experience enormous fragmentation, then we could both improve outcomes, uh, we can improve patients' outcomes and their experience. We can help their caregivers, which many of them have, but we can also help lower costs of care, which is something we're all interested in since healthcare in general is too expensive. Um, but the whole concept of like how we, how you identify them, how you segment them is, is still very much, um, so much in, in its infancy. I guess I would, back up, although I guess this might be getting into another question later. The reason 
the reason that we also not just try to identify them um, because, you know, they're, they're so needy and complex and they need the additional support, but they're a heterogeneous population. And that's really the underlying, you know, that's the purpose. That's the motivation between trying to understand and, and, and segment and why we went through so many different iterations of trying to understand as you call these schemas. So, for example, you, the bottom, I mean, it's really a very simple notion, actually. It's not one kind of intervention that's going to help everyone, all kinds of adults with a lot of complex medical and social needs, uh, that there is a, what you would do to support and help a frail elderly person living alone is fundamentally different from what you would do for a younger adult under the age of 65 who's living with disabilities and living at home, which is different from what you would do some with multiple chronic conditions, ambulating but at risk of exacerbations tomorrow, someone who's in the, you know, in the, with advanced illness um, nearing their end of life. And the reason we care, not just about identifying this segment of the population, those that are high need, high cost, but um, but, sec- but identifying subgroups among them is to better match them with the interventions that we think will improve their quality of life, improve their functional status, uh, and, and it, you know, make things easier for their caregivers, as well as also lower their costs. Okay, thank you. Uh, part of the problem, and I think you note this in the report, is that only 42% of those accounting for the 10% of medical uh, expenditures had persistently high spending over two years, meaning this population is fluid uh, year over year. So regardless of that, though, um, are you optimistic that this is an achievable goal and that uh, these high-need or super-utilizer patients can be with confidence um, um, uh, identified I ask that in part because, you know, these are resources spent trying to do this when you could argue, well, if we just did a better job of population health, maybe we'd get there anyway. I guess I'd see, I don't see this in either or. I, I am optimistic. Um, and I, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's actually a fundamental component um, of population health um, that you need to have um, you need to have a strategy and, a, and a, an infrastructure and a set of resources really in the form of personnel and um, information technology um, to, to better meet this, these, pop, you know, this, um, these really high-need, high-cost patients' needs. Um, I, absolutely, there is fluctuation, which is great, in, in that not everyone stays high-cost, um, is persistently high-cost, because some some people it resolves because the, they were really high cost for a year, and uh, and then it resolves, which is you know they're either for well maybe for good reasons because you know they they had an accident and it was attended to, maybe for less good reasons such as they passed away and and um, so we never you know we never really know, um, but I do think that this is a strategy or an, and a mindset that is very much nested within within the framework of of population health, uh, and that the same way we would think through a strategy on prevention and through strengthening primary care for everyone and better access to specialty care, really need to think through whether or not 
the healthcare system is working for those that are super sick, using lots of services that have multifactorial needs that are both medical and physical and behavioral and social. Um, you know, and, and that's, so I, I really see it as part of the framework. Okay, so you just mentioned uh, social needs. A good deal of the report talks about social service supports. Uh, you probably are very familiar with the uh, 2011 uh, BMJ study that showed that the United States compared to uh, OECD countries right. spends the inverse, meaning we spend mm -hmm. twice as much on medical as they do social. Um, they spend twice as much social as they do medical. And you could argue um, that largely explains the difference because they, uh, in many cases, improve or have a comparatively better outcomes. So let's go to this issue of social service supports. Um, most of these patients have, uh, are uh, high in high need of social service supports, meaning non-medical needs. And let's throw in uh, similarly mental health integration uh, however, uh, medical care as it's currently delivered does not do a very good job of providing social service supports. We've known this for some while, and we do know, you're probably very familiar with the 2011 Comasar and Fader Georgetown report that showed that patients, regardless of the number of chronic conditions, if they had any number of ADLs, really drove disproportionately uh, Medicare spending. So what uh, what was the report able to say about uh, doing a better job of integrating social service with uh, traditional clinical care? Right. Quite a bit. I mean, we spent a ton of time, I mean, as you, as you point out, we spent a ton of time trying to understand the needs of the population, the capacity of the system to serve the population, trying to understand kind of the, you know, kind of key subgroups within the population. But then also um, the gaps in the system that they're just not given, you know, given their needs, the gaps in the system. And and to the biggest the biggest gap is um, kind of addressing their social their social needs. Um, by which I mean, you know, housing or uh, healthy nutrition or you know, uh, stable housing um, uh, or transportation, non-emergency transportation. Um, and uh, all, but also, in addition to the social service needs, there are a lot of behavioral health needs. This population lives with uh, a fair bit of social isolation, anxiety, depression, and then there are a number who also have really complex behavioral health problems, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, and and whatnot. So, what we when we did our there's, just, there's a lot of different pieces to this. So just what I will say is that we know that these high knee or complex adults, on average, tend to be older, tend to have, be lower income, tend to be, have public insurance. Right. One of the things that you just referenced in that article by Harriet Commissar is that a number uh, that a key predictor of high cost is what we call functional limitations. So that's, you know, being your ability to take care of daily needs, such as bathing and dressing and um, grocery shopping and, and a whole bunch of, you know, activities associated with daily living. Another predictor of, of high costs is also this, these behavioral health 
conditions and that we've seen that people with multiple chronic conditions, um, when there's, you know, the costs are multiplicatively higher. It's not just like additive, it's like multiplicative when there is um, either a serious mental illness uh, or a drug and alcohol hall problem. So kind of giving this, given our understanding of this, while well, we spent a lot of time um, trying to, as we talked about before, kind of understand this population from a whole population perspective. And the first step there is actually whole population risk stratification, so the low risk, the rising risk, the high risk, right, or the highest need, that top 5%. Then in that top 5%, as I said before, it's a heterogeneous group. So you segment across, you know, among, among that to identify the five or six, you know, key subgroups. But one of the problems that we ran into is that if the whole purpose of segmentation is to match patients, you know, with effective interventions, which is what the evidence shows, that programs or interventions or models are really effective when they target the people they were meant to help, right? So, um, but how, who you put on that team and where you serve that patient or person will vary based on not just their clinical needs, not just their functional limitations, but their behavioral health needs and their social service needs. And we went back and forth and back and forth about, well, how do we mix all of these various like dimensions and variables to, to segment this population? And we ultimately decided we, while limited, and we fully agree that it's limiting, that we started with their medical conditions in part because we were coming at this as a health care, health system community. That's one, just recognizing who we are a little bit. It's the National Academy of Medicine. But two, it's actually the most likely data that's available. While I'm not a huge fan of just using data that's available, right, to help, um, it is, um, there was a practical notion, there, there's a practicality to that approach. But what's really important and what we spend a lot of time on is, but you can't stop there. If you're trying to kind of figure out what's the best program to bring into your healthcare system, your ACO, your Medicare Advantage plan, to meet the needs of these high-need, high-cost patients, can't just assess their clinical needs and the functional limitations, also have to look at their social service needs and also look at their behavioral health issues. And let me just be specific. So if you have somebody who has three or more chronic conditions and is homebound, so he has, you know, she has, you know, um, uh, some kind of pulmonary disorder and um, also has diabetes and is struggling with, you know, serious depression um, and, they're ho- and they're homebound. So you and, and they don't have a lot of uh, family or social support, right, in their community. So in addition to kind of maybe having a complex care nurse visit them in their home to, you know, check in on, on their on their chronic conditions and their blood sugar and a number of things. Um, you may also incorporate and involve um, a, a behaviorist or some kind of a therapist who can help them manage their depression. But also you might include a social worker who can help make sure that they get at least one or two or three healthy meals a day, maybe kind of sign up with a local senior center to, to have somebody visit for some kind of um, social interaction. And that is really the value of 
the the segmentation and looking at not just their medical needs, but also thinking through the behavioral health needs and the social service needs. And there's a lot more to say there, but we we really, that was so much of what we were thinking about in development of this report uh, and spent a lot of time thinking, well, if you were going to have like a starter set of high impact variables that or high impact, you know, areas and social needs that you would want to know because it would in, that you would want to know about an individual patient because it would inform the team, the, the the care team that you would build around that patient. So it's not supposed to be an extensive screener, just more like help build the team and help understand how what kind of workforce I need to hire. Um, you'd want to know about their income and their education. You want to know a lot about their social isolation since so many struggle with social isolation so that their marital status, their relationship status, whether they're living alone is important. You may want to know some more about their community deprivation in terms of, um, which is a very, not a very attractive way of saying. You want to know like kind of the resources in their community um, household income, proximity to pharma, uh, pharmacies, other kind of services, but also very important was the housing security and whether or not they're homeless, whether or not they've experienced a, a, a recent eviction. And then once you get in, you can do more of an in-depth screener around nutritional support, transportation support, um, uh, whether or not they've had a lot of experience or in and out of um, the criminal justice system, which are other really important variables that we that we played with a lot. Um, so that hopefully gives you a sense, um, and, and that's really on the social side. On the behavioral health side, we looked a lot in terms of these high-impact components that you'd want to know, and again, for the purposes of really like planning and building a team around someone, is around substance abuse, mental health, cognitive decline, so dementia, really important. Um, and then just chronic stress. Um, so. Th thank you. That's very helpful. In fact, the, the textbook statement on that would be accounting for their allostatic load or level of stress uh, in best ways of developing what you're suggesting, a therapeutic relationship with the patient because, as you further noted, much of health status has to do with things other than clinical uh, clinical care. Let's Let's go to... Um, uh, you know the old phrase, the future's here, it's just unevenly distributed. So the report makes note of 14 successful care models. I wasn't surprised to see PACE uh, noted in those. What are some of the things you found interesting that these models are doing effectively in caring for these uh, high-need, high-complex patients, maybe things that you were unaware of previously? So I think um, so the most interesting things to me about some of these models, and this and this, you know, report, as you say, points out uh, 14, and this was um, those 14 were identified by Dr. Arnie Milstein at Stanford University. Um, you know, the I think that the critical element, and this isn't necessarily derived necessarily from from all the literature, but the pieces that I um, I find so. Uh, intriguing or, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, risk stratification and then the segmentation, but actually a lot of these programs, even within that subgroup, they target within that. And by which I mean, there are some people who may be really high need and, and complex, 
um, who actually are fairly stable. They're, for, they're, they're, they're resilient. They have a number of protective, you know, factors or, you know, things that help kind of keep them. And, and you don't actually need to put that level of, of service on them necessarily, but you need to kind of keep track. So I was kind of the, the targeting even within, I, I think, is something that often gets overlooked. And it's not about rationing. It's more about making sure it's effective use of resources. So that's one. The other really important factor that is super common um, is something we just talked about, which is this freedom to integrate um, the the physical, the behavioral, and the social services. That if you listen to some of these, you know, clinicians, these doctors, and they talk about, well, actually, given Mrs. Jones's condition, it's really my colleague, the social worker, who's leading the team. And there's that sense of not only just team-based care, but this sense of fluidity that um, depending on Mrs. Jones's needs, different people play captain. Um, and, and if, you know, so it's, and if, because we feel like her chronic conditions, you know, uh, are under control, we, we really are focusing now making sure that um, we've submitted an application for, for new housing uh, on her behalf or we're helping her, you know, navigate um, some, some, you know, some of, her, some of her anxiety and some of her depression, things like that. So I guess that that would be two things. One is the integration of the physical, the social, behavioral, but also the, the team, um, the team care. And I think the other is, um, you know, I, I guess the, the, the last thing is the, the ongoing training. Uh, professional development is really important in a lot of these models. I mean, this is something that's behind the scenes. It's not, a, it's, but um, what we what we do also find is uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of uh, training that goes on um, of these teams. So, um, and then I guess the last thing. Sorry, I know I just said that was around the you know the monitoring and the patient monitoring and the um, the use of a number of of new technologies. Um, apps and iPads and iPhones and things like that in terms of collecting information real time and being able to check in on, on patients um, and to communicate. You know, uh, sometimes people, you know, have to go into the home, but sometimes it's by Skype and other times it's by phone. Sometimes it's through con- the caregiver. Uh, and there is a lot of attention and appreciation for the role of um, familial, like family and non-family caregivers, uh, that they are the... They're the unsung heroes, the the glue that holds a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of this together. Okay, thank you. Certainly, the your latter point about uh, feedback, and the previous point about uh, it's it's all cares all, uh, time and place or situational. Melinda, I'm sorry to say, but we can't get through this interview without my asking you the question about payment and reimbursement. Yes, of course. <laughs> I I fully expected that. So let's let's get to that. Uh, some of these uh, programs are are capitated, uh, and the provider has a certain amount of free reign to provide uh, care as necessary, meaning they have flexibility in the kinds of care, whether it's clinical, social, otherwise, uh, that's uh, situationally needed. But what is all this research? And my understanding, um, and I was going to ask, this report is without recommendation. In reading it, my sense was you had three these this report is the sum substance of three work group meetings. Uh, but those points aside, what's 
what's your takeaway learning about what we can do better relative to payment? Um, I would say there are a number of there. Are, I think there are a number of suggested policy improvements, either stated explicitly or implicitly, in this report. Um, one is the value, the importance of value-based payment, moving away from fee-for-service and moving toward value-based payment, for example, because it gives um, the providers much-needed flexibility to blend and braid different, you know, different kinds of workforce as well as also, you know, incorporate some of the, the social service or the behavioral health um, instead of, you know, working under a fee-for-service system. So I think that is by far the most important piece. But I think also it's not just promoting value-based payment, but continuing to improve the design and implementation of value-based payment. Um, this may not actually have made it into this report, um, but it, you know, there's often a mismatch between um, the payment, the global payment, or the you know the goes or the capitated payment that goes to the organization, and the way that organization then turns around and pays its individual practices or providers, um, and or the teams. And that is, and I think that is a, a function, to be honest, of where we are in the evolution of value-based payment. The more mature um, organizations or ACOs are have have kind of figured you know have have gotten to the point where it's trickled down a little bit more so that there is that greater alignment. But I think that's another piece. I think another really important recommendation, which is here, is um, you know allowing payments for for non for non medical services. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that is that is critical. And there's um, some in some environments, you know, there's greater flexibility to enable that to happen. There is currently some, uh, leg you know, legislation through the, the Chronic Care Act where some uh, additional experimentation in that area is, or you know, is being proposed, particularly in Medicare Advantage. There's another proposal. Um, that has been put out uh, by the Bipartisan Policy Center, which calls for, well, should we have a benefit in Medicare that allows for essentially the coverage of home and community-based services, so personal care at home, you know, in Medicare, so that people don't have to spend down, become Medicaid eligible, and then end up in institutional settings such as nursing homes. Like, could would if we if we paid a little bit differently and a little bit more, you know, in Medicare, um, would it actually save a lot of money in, in longer term for these people? Just because um, nursing homes are so much more expensive. So, um, so I think that that's another really. Um, important piece on the payment side. I mean, there are a number of other policy-oriented recommendations um, around, you know, promoting um, greater data exchange, you know, modifying uh, regulations for data sharing rules, you know, in HIPAA to improve data flow, um, and then, you know, assisting clinicians in the adoption of, of, of best practices. Um, so there, there are a couple of others that aren't necessarily, you know, payment-related, but other policy recommendations. I think the last area, which also deserves um, more attention, and I and there have been the National Academy of Medicine did its own report on caregiving. But I think thinking through, I mean, with the changing demographics and the aging of the population, and um, you know, 
our reliance on family and and you know family and other kinds of caregivers is increasing, um, and figuring out how to support um, you know to support caregivers and reduce the burden of caregivers is is, is really really important and an area for further policy uh, development and also research. Well, amen to that. I've been my mother's uh, caregiver for the last. Uh, 10 years. With that, Melinda, sorry to say, we're at our time boundary, but genuinely appreciative. Could have gone to um, quality measurement and risk adjustment and various other subjects, um, but we'll leave it at this. Thank you again for this uh, review of this report. We hope it gets a wide readership and develops some legs, as they say. So again, Melinda, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.